This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. This is season two, and we're talking about the women of the National Barn Dance. Right like the wind, bullseye! That's our cue! Madam Chairwoman, members of the board, ladies and gentlemen, and my fellow cowgirls, I've always known that being 13 and a half inches tall doesn't make you any less of a cowgirl. You just have to ride a shorter horse. (laughs) But to find out that I've been given the honor of receiving the Patsy Montana Entertainer of the Year Award from the Cowgirl Hall of Fame, to stand tall among so many inspirational, courageous women. Well, there's just one word to describe how I'm feeling right now. That was, as you may have guessed, Jessie the Cowgirl from the Toy Story franchise in the year 2000, accepting the Patsy Montana Award, given by the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas, which recognizes those whose work in the entertainment field continues and advances the tradition of the cowgirl in the areas of film, television, music, writing, and theater. I don't really know what people think of when they hear the name Patsy Montana, but Jessie the Cowgirl is not a bad place to start. Jessie's image, the tomboyish, courageous cowgirl scrapping it up alongside and often better than the boys, is exactly the kind of image that Patsy Montana helped secure in the American imagination. Researching Patsy has been interesting, and I've been torn in how to tackle her story. It's mostly because Patsy's career stretches from the late 20s through her death in 1996. All this time, she never really retired, though she did slow down at several points in her career, only to find a reason to get back into the game. Of course, we'll talk about Patsy's most lauded distinction, becoming the first female country singer to sell a million singles with I Want to Be a Cowboy Sweetheart. We'll also give her the much-deserved respect for paving the way for many other female country artists in terms of fighting for equal pay and for proving that women singers can sell records. We also get a unique perspective through Patsy on the evolution of country music through the years. Her career, of course, intersects with barn dance stars like Lulu Bell, Gene Autry, and Red Foley, but we'll also see her career interact with everyone from the Carter family to Hank Williams to Waylon Jennings to Leanne Rimes and more. From the outset, we have to establish that Patsy was staunchly Western, both in her music and in her dress. It seems that once she put on her cowgirl hat and fringe in the early 30s, she never took it off, despite the changing trends. She would catch a wave every time Western music or fashion would come back in vogue and languish as trends moved on. Because of this, being at different points an insider and an outsider to the country music scene, uh, she has a lot of interesting things to say about country music and its various permutations, and about Nashville becoming the center of gravity for all things country. Patsy's not great with dates, and she says at the outset of her autobiography that she's never told her real age and she's not about to start now. 
It makes it tough to reconcile the many contradictions between her autobiography and interviews she gives, and I had to spend a little bit more time than I would like trying to nail down an actual timeline that makes historical sense. For example, in Patsy's telling, several key events happen when she's 14 or 15, but these events have her performing Jimmy Rogers songs that haven't been written yet and living simultaneously in California and Arkansas. The actual story is tough to parse, and I've tried not to get too bogged down in the details. I'm convinced that Patsy aged herself up by seven or eight years in her autobiography, and I'm telling the story using this timeline. It's the only one that makes sense to me. The last thing I'll say about the research of these episodes, Patsy tries very hard in her public persona to stay out of the muck. She never directly says a bad word about anyone she's worked with, but she'll hint that there are stories to be told that might malign the person in question. Consider this sentence from the preface of her autobiography. To me, this is both simultaneously baffling and revelatory. She says, There's no sex or violence in this book. There could be, but there isn't. Semicolon. My heroes have always been cowboys. That semicolon drives me mad. The Blevins are from the Ozarks, moving from Arkansas to Oklahoma and back, following and finding jobs as they came. In 1906, with several boy children in tow, they settled in Bugery, Arkansas, a town that no longer exists, in Garland County. In 1910, the family moved to nearby Jessville, when her father started teaching in a one-room schoolhouse there, and her mother became the postmaster turning their house into the local post office. I should say the mother did all the work of the postmaster. Legally speaking, the father was the postmaster, since women were not allowed to hold that job in Arkansas in the 1910s. The post office wanted to relocate the Blevins to a town called Hope in 1913, which would later become famous for being the birthplace of Bill Clinton. It is here, by my estimation, on October 30th, 1914, that the seventh of eleven children, the first and only Blevins' daughter, Ruby Rebecca, was born. Her father called her Ruby the Jewel of Arkansas. We'd come to know her as Patsy Montana. Patsy says being born was the most important thing that ever happened to her. She also says of sharing a hometown with Bill Clinton, He may be more famous, but I was here first. Like I said, Patsy had ten brothers, the older six being, and dig these names, Elbert, Ira, Aussie, Ordy, Leroy, and Leffel. That's L-E-F-F-E-L, Leffel. The house they moved into in Hope had an Edison home phonograph with several Enrico Caruso cylinders left by the previous residents. Patsy 
Patsy remembers singing along to Caruso's operatic voice and in trying to imitate his vibrato, coming out with something that sounded a little like yodeling, though she wouldn't have known it as this at the time. They also at one point had a pump organ in the house. Here's Patsy talking about that. She says, well, I can remember the first instrument that I can remember. We had an old organ, the kind you pump with your feet. I remember I had to, I couldn't sit down and reach the pedals, so I'd stand on one foot and try to pedal with the other, and my mother would play chords. You know, the chording. She didn't read music. I could tell when she'd hit a wrong chord. I'd tell her she was playing something wrong, you know, but that was my first memory. Patsy would hustle and make a little extra money when she could. One way she would do this is to take any leftover magazines from the post office dead letter box, those that were unclaimed or returned, and sell them door to door in a black neighborhood. Patsy herself is white. She would get a nickel or dime per magazine. They would put the money she earned in the family's egg money kitty, which they would use for the occasional splurge on something special. Patsy wrote a song later in her career called Mama's Egg Money. I haven't just blown by the obvious racial segregation in the town. I'll get back to this in a bit through a different anecdote. Patsy grew up as what she terms a tomboy, choosing to wear overalls and plaid shirts instead of the, quote, little frilly girly things her mother tried to dress her in. Patsy could be stubborn and ornery. For example, there was a strict no animals in the house policy, but Patsy, being the only girl child, slept alone and would often be cold at night. That is, until a neighborhood cat started showing up at her window. Patsy would sneakily let the cat in, and the cat would cuddle at her feet and keep her warm. Every morning, her mother would find the cat and whip Ruby for her disobedience. Every night, Ruby would let the cat back in. One day, one of Ruby's brothers came home with a violin. Its origins are unknown to her. The brothers tried to hide it away from her, knowing music's magnetism for young Ruby, but she found it and convinced her mother to use some of the egg money to get her lessons. She was progressing on the instrument until winter came, and the cow was giving less milk, and the hens were laying fewer eggs. They could no longer afford lessons, and Ruby began teaching herself fiddling, not violining, at the suggestion of her mother. The difference between the two, according to her mother, is that in fiddling you tap your foot a little bit, something that her violin teacher would never allow. She also remembers her mother telling her at one point, you can yodel a lot better than you can play violin. Patsy also says, We had a wind-up Victrola that played the records. I remember we had Fritz Chrysler records, not country. But that's when I was going to set the world on fire playing violin, not fiddle, violin. On Saturday nights, her parents used to host dances. The kids weren't allowed to attend, but they would be in the other room listening. She says they'd roll back the rug and put in more chairs and dance. There'd be Saturday night shindigs, so I grew up listening before I participated. Ruby also began attending a subscription singing school at one point, learning how to read music as well as shape note singing and harmony. She began singing in the church her family attended as well, First Southern Baptist Church in Hope. 
So we see the early musical influences of sacred music, shape note singing, classical violin and fiddling, and Caruso's opera. Here's one unsettling story that Patsy tells in her autobiography that I feel deserves a bit more scrutiny. I mentioned earlier that Ruby's selling of magazines to the black members of town nodded to the segregation and economic divisions of Hope, Arkansas, and Patsy's formative years. In her autobiography, Patsy also tells of another formative musical experience. Here's what she says. Through the open windows, the warm summer night glowed from the moon above. Softly, so as not to bother anyone, our black hired hand, Pico, began to strum his guitar. He slept in the barn, and I loved listening to him sing and play. I lay there almost every night, listening to the sounds of Pico's voice, and the strings of his guitar lulled me to sleep. From a very early age, I had music around me almost every waking minute, and it ranged from opera to black man's blues. Okay, so we're getting a sense of Patsy's musical world, and also a further taste of the concepts of race in Arkansas at this time. Here's the passage that leaves no question that Patsy grew up in a deeply racist society. One afternoon, I came home from school to find a commotion going on in our living room. I asked what was going on, but everyone talked at once, and I did not get an answer to my question. After several futile attempts, Mama said, Never mind, Ruby, we'll talk about it later. After washing dishes, her mother explains, Last night someone raped a white woman in town, she told me, blurting out the bad news. Even though no one knew for sure who committed the crime, every black man in town hightailed it out of the county. Patsy says, My eyes grew wide in disbelief. Many of them left their families behind. They got so afraid they dropped whatever they were doing and just up and left. Patsy immediately runs to the barn, looking for Pico, but he's not there. She says, I slowly made my way back to the house. I went inside and carefully placed the old beat-up guitar on the table. It had only four rusty strings. It's mine, Mama, I said quietly. This old guitar is mine. It was not much of an instrument, yet it was the best a poor black man could afford. While singing, yodeling, and strumming that old guitar, I must have driven everybody in the place nuts. It's a complex situation for a child to comprehend, but I'm thinking of 70-plus-year-old Patsy retelling the story in her autobiography. I'm not exactly sure what she's trying to relay other than the acquisition of her first guitar and her first attempts at making up songs but her lack of commentary and general obliviousness on how she benefits and is complicit in the apparently violently racist culture she lived in was maddening to me in my first read of her autobiography and still remains disappointing, to say the least, to my 2022 sensibilities. In 1927, I guess at the age of 12 or 13, Ruby began playing recitals and competitions around Arkansas, even making the trip to Texarkana for one competition, in which she won second prize. Ruby was driven in anything she set out to do. Once she entered a newspaper subscription selling contest, where the prizes for first and second places were new cars. Ruby put her natural pluck and charisma to work and came in second, winning the family a brand new Pontiac, a luxury otherwise beyond their reach. Patsy tells about arriving to the dealership to pick up the new car, and at, I'm not sure what age, is handed the keys to drive home. 
which she does, despite not knowing how to drive or having money for gas. She says that she managed to get the car out of the dealership driveway and to the top of the small hill that led home. She says, I figured if I could get to that point, I could just aim the car and it might coast down the hill and into the driveway. That kind of thinking is what living in a man's world will do for you, and it worked. Okay, Patsy, so this sounds like a little bit of a tall tale, but at several points in her career, she attributes certain successes to having this man's world mentality. So we'll take the story as teaching us more about Patsy's worldview. Here's Patsy's telling Jerry Jeff Walker, who's probably most famous for writing Mr. Bojangles, about her first paying public performance. Did you start playing in Arkansas music? Yes, really. We got playing around on Saturday nights. We had uh, my brothers played a, a guitar. And I remember the very first date I ever had, when I became professional, I got five bucks. All right. They was opening a big bridge or something, big opening day, you know, a bridge and anything to bring a big crowd of people. And they said they'd give me $5 if I'd sing a song. I'm fine, but I couldn't play guitar. So I hired my brother. He could play the guitar to play the guitar for me, and he did, and we sang, we got our five dollars, and he wanted three bucks because he played the guitar. Right then was the birth of women's lib for me. I paid him <laughs> two and a half. I got two and a half. All <laughs> right. <laughs> so being in a in man's world didn't bother me at all. Still doesn't. Patsy's family gets Jimmy Rogers' record sometime after he started recording in 1927. Two drummers, they were seated in a grand hotel one day. While dining, they were chatting in a joyful sort of way. There came a pretty waitress to bring a tray of food. They spoke to her familiarly. In a manner rather Here's what she says about why she loved Jimmy Rogers. She says, His music was so different from anything else I had ever heard. He yodeled, and I guess that was a big draw for me. He sang about hard times, railroads, and so many things with which I could identify. The sound was rather bluesy, stuff I hear the black folks singing. At the same time, it often sounded all jazzed up. We had his old records. I grew up with them, and I learned to yodel. I didn't call it yodeling. I don't know what we called it, but where I was getting my exercise for my years to follow, we would get ready for school, and we'd go out and yodel. The kids down the road would answer if they were ready. We'd wait for them. Okay, we have to drop a pin right here. I want to tell the story of Patsy's first actual big break in the music business, but I don't believe Patsy's timeline. In her autobiography, she says that this happened before she graduates high school in 1928. The problem is the Jimmy Rogers songs she says she sings haven't been released yet, and the story is nearly identical to the story she tells of how she first got on radio in California. Her autobiography has her moving out to California to attend the University of the West, later known as UCLA, after attending high school. It makes more sense for this story, and for others we'll get to, that Patsy moves to California in 1928 or 29 while still a high schooler, or at least high school aged. She lived with her older brother, Ordy, and his wife, who had already moved out there, to be followed by her brother, Luffle. 
I can only speculate as to why she would age herself up seven years, but I don't want to subject you to my wild theories. If you want to get in touch with me and hear my thoughts or correct my hypothesis, we can talk it through. Maybe it's a whole nother podcast with the working title Patsy Minutia. Anyway, I'm running with the idea that Patsy moves to Southern California as a teenager around the age of 14 or 15. While in California, she says she joined the Angelus Temple, Amy Semple McPherson's Lighthouse Symphony Orchestra. Amy Semple McPherson is a major figure in Pentecostalism and religious radio. Uh, You should look her up. The orchestra would be broadcast twice a week on KFSG, and this would be Ruby's first time performing on radio. One day, Ruby's sister-in-law, Ordy's wife, saw an advertisement for a music competition, the grand prize of which was an appearance on KMTR's Breakfast Club. Ruby wanted to enter, but she could only play violin, and she couldn't sing and play violin at the same time. The next day, Ordy gave her a guitar and showed her a few chords and how to read a chord chart. She entered the competition, practiced for two weeks, working up two Jimmy Rogers songs, Whisper Your Mother's Name, and Yodeling Cowboy. My cowboy life is so happy and free Out west where the laws don't bother me I take my troubles like a toy I'm just a yodeling cowboy Her sister-in-law thought she should wear something that was a little more western, but Ruby chose to wear a more formal black dress and pearls. Though nervous, Ruby won the contest and got her first break on radio. Here's her telling of it. I entered a contest in a theater in Hollywood, and I remember borrowing my brother's credit card and going to a clothing store and bought me a black dress with a big beaded butterfly. Trying to look older was what I was trying. I'm trying to go back the other way now. Come out with my guitar, and I just knew about three or four chords, but I knew music. Several months later, my brother brought me this guitar and said, well, let's see you play this. I learned a few chords and the songs I grew up with, Just fun to introduce a little neighborhood theater contest. That used to be the big thing. They'd have these contests. Didn't even have a strap for my guitar. I drug out a chair on the stage. I can just see myself now. It must have been funny. I had to put my leg up on the chair in order to balance my guitar. I sang Yodeling Cowboy and Whisper Your Mother's Name. I don't know why, but I won that night. Maybe they felt sorry for me. There was a lady backstage that night that gave me this. Says... Why don't you make you a little western outfit? I grew up in blue jeans and stuff. To me, that wasn't dressing up. I wanted to dress up, you know. But there was another little seed planted. See, people help you all along the way, if you just stop and listen. I hope that I've helped a lot of people to sort of repay it. So Patsy wins the appearance on KMTR's Breakfast Club, and she does so well they hire her on as a regular member of the show, paying her $7.50 a show. Ruby, as a way to appear more glamorous, added an E to the end of her name, so now it's spelled R-U-B-Y-E, and she was billed on the show as Ruby Blevins, the yodeling cowgirl of San Antone. 
After a few months on the show, she caught the attention of Stuart Hamblin, who would become a legendary country songwriter in his own right. This old house once knew my children, this old house once knew my wife. This old house was home and comfort as we fought the storms of life. This old house once rang with laughter, this old house heard many shouts. Now she trembles in the darkness when the lightning walks about. Ain't gonna need this house no longer, ain't they gonna need this house no more. Ain't got time to fix the shingles, ain't got time to fix the floor. Ain't got time to oil the hinges, not a men, no window pane. Ain't gonna need this house no longer, I'm a get ready to meet the same. Hamblin wanted Ruby to help form a trio with two other women. Being offered more money than she was making at the radio station, Ruby accepted and joined Ruth DeMondron and another woman named Lorraine. It was confusing to audiences to have a Ruby and a Ruthie in the same act, so Ruby agreed to a name change. Hamblin suggested Patsy due to Ruby's Irish heritage, and they picked Montana after rodeo performer Monty Montana. They liked the name so much that they named the trio the Montana Cowgirls. It's at this time that Patsy settled into a Western style in both her attire and her music. She says, When I started my career, there were only really two kinds of music on the radio, popular and classical. I studied classical music on the violin. I never fiddled. Just as I began my career, Western music began to get a foothold in the industry, and I saw a great opportunity with it. It was a natural for me because I loved everything considered Western. I even yodeled naturally. This is about the time that Bob Wills and his light crust doughboys and Gene Autry were making their mark in Western music. Sunbonnet Sue, when I said goodbye to you, you promised you'd be true. Sunbonnet Sue, when skies are blue. I won't hear you say I do, for I'm in love with you, Sunbonnet Sue. Working with the Montana Cowgirls, Patsy learned lessons that would stay with her throughout her career, one of which is to always please the fan first. She says, There have been many times I wanted to perform for me, play and sing what I like, what I feel like playing at the time. The audience always comes first. I can sing and play whatever I want at home for my own enjoyment. Of her bandmates, she says, Ruth, Lorraine, and I rode horses. We rode motorcycles. We played in the mountain snow, the blue waters of the Pacific, on the giant redwood trees of Yosemite National Forest. For the first time in my life, I had sisters. We had a ball. We worked together, ate together, and played together, and were as one. They also made a few movie shorts together at this time, one of which being The Lightning Express in either 1930 or 1931. Here's Patsy talking about that. She says, One of the studios heard us and wanted us to, and that's what started us. I guess we did a good job. I remember we were sitting on a rail fence playing the two violins, and Ruth was playing the guitar. I remember a fly. A fly kept buzzing around my nose, and I had to keep playing the violin, trying to smile, and wrinkle my nose to get the fly off. That's the reason I remember that particular picture, but I forgot the theme of it. I forgot that. Maybe it was a train coming in the background or something. Patsy and her brothers return to Arkansas for a bit to see their parents, and Patsy spends a couple of weeks in Shreveport, Louisiana. 
The year is 1932. I'll let Patsy tell you what happens from here. Well, I had come home from California then, just starting out in the business, and my folks lived in Hope, Arkansas, right close. They used to listen to KWKH all the time, so they wanted to hear what I sounded like on the air. Now, believe it or not, I remember going down the street for it, walking in the office. Hey, I'm a singer. I like to go on the air. Just about like that. And I went on the air for about two weeks. That's all because I had to go back. Anyway, the folks listened to me. But anyway, one day I was singing there, and this guy calls me up and says, My name is Jimmy Davis. He says, I like your voice, blah, blah, blah. He says, I'm going to New York to make some records, and I wonder if you'd consider going with me. Hey, that was kind of... I'd never heard of Jimmy Davis. I didn't know who he was, so my brother lived in Shreveport. In fact, I was staying with him. I said, who's Jimmy Davis? He called me up. Oh, he's a big guy. He's the city clerk. He's well known here. I'd never heard of him. I told him about the New York thing, and of course my brother was all for it. It was the greatest thing. Well, anyway, we agreed to do that. I was supposed to yodel and sing with him and play the violin, kind of an obligato. That's not exactly a hillbilly word, but, you know, kind of runs in behind him. And that's what happened. I went to New York. So a couple of things about this story. How cute is it that Patchy's parents wanted to hear her over the radio, so she goes to the nearest station and just gets on? Another thing, as Patsy tells it in her book, her father had to consent to allow Jimmy Davis to take Patsy across state lines. Another indication that she's still a minor in 1932. Just under 18, maybe? making an October 1914 birth date more realistic. These sessions are in Camden, New Jersey, and are overseen by our old friend from Season 1, Ralph Peer. I think this is the first time we've seen him in Season 2, and these are also the same recording facilities we heard about in the Elsie McWilliams, Carter Family, and Cleo Mabrew episodes. In her work with Jimmy Davis, Patsy, credited as Ruby Blevins, that's Ruby with an E, recorded Bury Me in Old Kentucky, Jealous Lover, Gambler's Return, and Home in Caroline. There's an old and aged couple in Caroline. They've been waiting there for a time. There's my daddy old and gray, and they say he'll pass away. So I'm leaving here today for Caroline. Dad of mine. Dad of mine, how I'm hoping that the train will be on time. I can hardly hold my tears, it has been so many years since I left my dear old home in Caroline. You to your dear old daddy. Ruby Blevins, she also recorded some solo songs. Montana Plains, Sailor's Sweetheart, I Love My Daddy Too. Do you ever sing of your mother? If you do, it is kind of you. But do you ever sing of your daddy? Don't you love your daddy too? Mother's love to me is holy, always precious, kind and true, and I never will forget her, 
But I love my daddy too When the flowers of Montana were blooming. Tonight in this big busy city, mid the thousands I'm lost and alone. And my thoughts keep drifting back to you, dear, and the old western home I have known. When the flowers of Montana were blooming, and the meadowlark is building its nest Where the snow-white peaks are looming Or my old prairie home in the west I'm dreaming tonight in the big city light Of a sweetheart I left her so divine When the flowers of Montana were blooming I'll be coming back to you, sweetheart of mine. Montana Plains and Sailor's Sweetheart were unissued from this session, so I don't really know if these were her own compositions or not. And we'll talk more about Montana Plains in the next episode. But just remember, she did record a song by that name here. Nevertheless, here's Patsy, probably 17, recording two of her own compositions with confidence and poise, like a seasoned professional. Yet, believe it or not, this was the first time Patsy heard her own singing voice, and she hated it. Here's how she tells it. Well, I come into the engineer. I was sitting down in the middle of the floor, changing a string on the violin, and the engineer says, Let's see how Patsy sounds alone. Well, I had a number ready and waiting. I got up and I sang it. He played it back to me. Now, the only reaction I can tell you now is how I felt. I wanted to go out and eat worms. You know, you never sound like you think you do. Yeah, I wanted to go out and eat worms. I was ready to quit right then. When asked what she didn't like about it, she said, I've always wanted a deep voice, you know, like Tammy Wynette, the way down there and stuff, you know, but oh well, that's just a personal thing. Not only was this the first chance for Patsy Montana to get her music on record, she also got some invaluable advice from Jimmy Davis. He told her that she needed to abandon the violin and only play guitar if she wanted to play Western music, since she could not accompany herself on violin. Patsy returns to California, and the Montana Cowgirls reunite for a while, but as it happens, both Ruthie and Lorraine get married and quit the band. Patsy returns to Arkansas for another visit the following year. So the year is 1933. Patsy Montana has her name. She has her radio experience. She has her guitar. She has her western wear. She returns to Arkansas, planning to go back to California. That is, until she's asked by the mayor of Hope to accompany a watermelon to the World's Fair in Chicago. And the rest is history that we will dig into in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this first of three Patsy Montana episodes. In the next episode, we'll see her career take off as she joins WLS, writes her first hit record, and survives tough times in the 40s. The third episode will round out her career. As always, you can get in touch with me through email, wildwoodflowerpod at gmail, or on Instagram at wildwoodflowerpod. 
See you next time. I'm dreaming tonight in the big city lights Of a sweetheart I left there so divine When the flowers of Montana were blooming I'll be coming back to you, sweetheart of mine. Yeah.